Well, my physician said, do not run this marathon. You'll have permanent damage to your foot. So what do I do? I take off my walking boot and I throw my crutches aside and I board a bus to Hopkinton, Massachusetts, where the starting line of the Boston Marathon is. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. It's a pleasure to be interrogated by you, Brian. <laughs> this is not a race. This is war. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have award-winning Harvard physician and Boston Marathon bombing humanitarian, Dr. Natalie Stavis, as she shares her story of that day, how running helps her with ADHD, and tips from growing up as a farm kid in Nebraska. What I think is so remarkable about Natalie is that she just has a heart for helping people, whether it's a doctor or as someone who's helping runners or as someone who sees a bomb that goes off and runs over and helps people, even though she's, you know, just run a marathon, the most exhausting thing you can do uh, with a broken foot. And I, I had to ask her, like, Natalie, what was it like going up to that day running the Boston Marathon with a broken foot? So on April 15th, 2013, I was not supposed to be running that day. Rewind about six months and I was walking through Barnes and Noble and I saw this book called Born to Run. And it was like calling to me, I'm like, this book was made for me. So I pick up Born to Run, I read it in less than 24 hours. And the message that I took from that book, which in retrospect was not the correct message to take from the book, but the message I took was if I run barefoot, I'm going to be a superhuman. So I decide uh, after never having run barefoot in my life, I decide to train for the 2013 Boston Marathon barefoot. So I made it through almost the entire training season until my last 20 mile run. About 18 miles into it, I had this sharp pain in my foot. I couldn't walk. I went to the orthopedic surgeons. I had what's called an avulsion fracture. So I had ruptured my posterior tibial tendon, which is a large tendon in your foot. When that tendon ruptured, it ripped one of my bones in half in my foot. So that's called an avulsion fracture. Now, the true definition of an avulsion fracture is when a highly trained athlete overcomes the power of their own body ripping a tendon. And at that moment, I was like, yes, I'm a highly trained <laughs> athlete, right? With like this busted foot and a marathon to run in less than two weeks. So all my physicians said, do not run this marathon. You'll have permanent damage to your foot. So what do I do? I wake up at 4 a.m. on the morning of the marathon and I take off my walking boot and I throw my crutches aside and I board a bus to Hopkinton, Massachusetts, where the starting line of the Boston Marathon is with the intent of running the marathon that day. I'm not saying that was a good decision, <laughs> but it was about my 16th marathon or so. So I uh, was not a novice. I, I figured I could give it a shot and I knew my body well enough that if I had to pull out of the race, I could. Now, fortunately, the race actually went quite well. I was definitely in pain, but I was running with my father. So my father and I had used running as a bonding experience for many years. So I've run 
five or six marathons with my father as like his father-daughter team. And this was going to be my dad's last marathon. That's what he said. He's run four marathons since then, but that was going to be his last marathon. So this was going to be our last race together. And I didn't want to let him down. So I said, and this is the advice. This is my father. This is the advice he gave me. He said, oh, Natalie, I'm so sorry. You have a busted foot. We'll just run slower than normal. Like, not like we won't run it, but we'll run slower. So like, okay. So we were running slower. We were running about 45 minutes slower than my average time. And that is why I found myself approaching the finish line when the bombs detonated. And I was about 800 meters from the finish line. So stunned, right, but not seriously injured. I found myself in this position suddenly where I was surrounded by chaos and we had we did not know what was happening at all we heard the crowd yelling um bombs sniper gunmen attack and at least for me it was total confusion but I knew one thing is that people were gravely wounded at the finish line and so that's when I made the decision in that moment to overcome my fear of the situation and, and run into it and do whatever I could. I knew I had to help treat the people who had been so horribly injured. And, and what was that like at that scene? Like what's, what's the first thing that you did and how did you keep progressing and, and how long were you there? So I tried to get to the finish line going down a street called Boylston Street. The police officers, they had mobilized, they had their guns drawn. They did not know what was going on. They were ready for more bombs and more attack. And so one of the police officers stopped me and he said, you know, ma'am, what are you doing? You're going in the wrong direction. And I, I remember yelling at him. I said, I'm a kid's doctor. You know, I'm a kid's doctor. You have to let me through. And he let go of me. And because the street was so crowded and the spectators were so frenzied, I actually turned off of the street and ran down this small alley that I knew about because I'd been living in Boston for years. And that alley paralleled the finish line and it dumped me out at what is known as bomb scene number two. And so, you know, we all have experiences in our life where things happen to us and an image or a moment is forever branded, you know, on our mind. And for me, it was coming to that bomb scene number two and looking at the ground and asking myself, how am I going to bring this woman back from the dead? And so I, along with dozens of other first responders, right, who were so courageous, who didn't even have medical background, went to work as fast as we could. We had nothing except the clothes on our backs. So we were uh, tourniqueting legs with shoelaces and with shirts, doing CPR, triaging the wounded in a, in a mass casualty event like that. You have to critically think who is most injured? Who do I have to get out now? Who can wait? And trying to make that decision, it can be very difficult. I actually am not sure how long I was there. I ended up at home hours and hours later. But at the scene that day, I treated four people and three of them survived. Your story, it's funny to me um, when you're talking about how you did this and you were ready to go on with the rest of your life 
the next day, you were scheduled to do a 30 hour shift, which right. is, you know, run a marathon, do a 30 hour shift, but in the middle, you know, do this, this, uh, obviously amazing, courageous thing, helping people in a very dangerous situation. How did your life change? I know you were just going to walk away from this. I was, it was just going to be, and I didn't know how to interpret it, right? We're all in shock. We have no idea what this means, what happened, why it happened. The, sus- the suspects hadn't been caught. Boston was on lockdown. They, we, we didn't know if there were going to be, there was rumor there were more bombs that had been planted throughout the city. So you can imagine the terror that people felt at that time. I actually live only a few blocks from the finish line. So I definitely was in shock. And I remember limping home, bloody and tired and wondering basically how I was going to get up the next day and go to work because I was supposed to go to the hospital for a 28-hour shift as a resident. And you know, I got home and I was getting ready to go to bed and my phone rang and it was an unknown number. And it happened to be a New York Times reporter. And I hadn't talked about this to anyone. I was just, like you said, going to go on with my life. And the reporter had got my number from a friend of a friend of a colleague. And it's amazing how fast um, contact information travels in this day and age. And so he said, can I talk to you about this? And I, I, I talked to him for hours and, and I, I really had no idea what I was saying. I was describing the day, the beauty of the day, the beauty of the marathon, what it was like to be at the scene. I was crying, talking about the patience and the suffering. And we hung up at like midnight and then my phone started going off nonstop around 4 a.m., because my story was the story of the front page of the New York Times the next day. And after that, you know, my life changed in that people wanted to hear the story. And people, not only did people want to hear the story, but people were fascinated by this concept of courage and this concept of finding yourself in a challenging situation and knowing what to do. I think more than anything, that started to emerge as time went on and as I started to talk about this experience and the decision-making that occurred. I, I came home one day and a bunch of reporters were sitting on my stoop in Boston. They had found out where I lived. They were very handsome men from the BBC, so I was more than happy to invite them in for some tea and to chat with them. But... All these reporters and all these journalists, even some of my favorite, like Anderson Cooper, um, they all had this same question. They were all asking me, why? Why would you do this? And for a long time, I didn't have the answer to their question. I thought something was wrong with me. I don't know. I don't have the why. I don't know the answer. And then it literally dawned on me one day during a run. I think most of my ideas, good or bad, come while I'm running. And it dawned on me that they were asking the wrong question. The question I feel they should have been asking is how. 
How do we teach people that courage is actually our first instinct, right? How do we teach people that challenges and chaos are not necessarily our enemy? Rather, these situations can serve as an opportunity to improve the human conditioning, the human condition, to alleviate suffering, to find meaning in this world, which is inherently chaotic and challenging. So after I came up with that, how, like, how can we do this? That's when I started to set my sights on researching that how. And I did that by interviewing dozens of people who are first responders in their own life. So people who chose to be first responders, police officers, right, who sacrifice their lives daily, firefighters, uh, and then people who responded to natural disasters unknowingly or even unwillingly, like people who find themselves at the scene of a mass shooting or a bombing or a natural disaster. So I started interviewing them and we started doing some research and trying to discover the meaning of how we find meaning in chaos and why it's important to find meaning in chaos and why it's important to harness that meaning and become a stronger advocate, right? And a stronger person because of it. Um, Not someone who shies away from it. And, and where do you think that comes from with you? Like, I think one of the coolest things, obviously you got all these other cool things. You're actually a farm kid. So I come uh, from like 200 <laughs> years of farmers myself. And right. so I know you're a farm kid from Nebraska. Yep. Where do you think, whether it's farming, where do you think that comes from in you? I think it comes from a variety of different sources. So, you know, one's personality and the choices that one makes evolve over time. And, A lot of it is environment. So my parents really instilled in me a strong sense of hard work. You know, we wake up early, we work hard, but an enjoyment and an appreciation for the work that we do and the love that we have for each other and for our family. So I think part of it comes from this deep sense of commitment that I felt to humanity. My parents were very giving. Our Saturday mornings were not consumed by cartoons. They were consumed by going to food pantries. And I, my mom used to make me come to this clinic where we clipped the toenails of homeless men who couldn't like clip them themselves. That stopped after I clipped this homeless man's toenail and it flew into my mouth and I swallowed it. So that, I never had to do that again. But the, I think ingrained in us from an early age was kind of this commitment to humankind and giving back in whatever way we could. So I think it was the combination of growing up on farmland and feeling really connected to the earth and the world and our, our hard work. We had good outcomes. The harder we worked, the better our outcomes from that standpoint. And then the sense of kindness and altruism. And then the courage probably stemmed from my desire and pursuit to be in the medical field and understanding that it, it takes a lot of courage to go into medicine, to be a woman in medicine, uh, to be a pioneer in medicine, right? To, to, to try and be innovative, you know, harness your energy to 
alleviate suffering and improve the human condition in whatever way you can. So, you know, on that fateful day, I made the decision to run into it, into the chaos, but so did a lot of other people. So it's not just that it's because I'm a doctor and I was there. I think it's more than that, that courage is embedded in us. And I share this in my speech, but actually our fight or flight center in our brain is called our amygdala. So our fight or flight center in our brain is one of the most primitive parts of our brain. Well, that is also our reward center. They're the same structure. And so your fight or flight center and your reward center are one in the same. And a really interesting phenomenon about that is when you do an act of courage or you do an act of kindness, your reward center actually is the most active part of your brain. And it's releasing a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that brings us joy in life and brings us happy, happiness and brings us fulfillment. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that, allow us, that allows us to find meaning in this chaotic world. So I don't think it's by chance that when we do something courageous and kind, that the most active center in our brain is our amygdala and it's releasing the happiness hormone, the joy hormone, you know, the hormone that fulfills us. And so I think there's something powerful behind that, that we are actually wired as human beings to be courageous in times of crisis, to be kind during challenging situations. In your everyday life, like I pray to God that you will never experience what I experienced, but in your everyday life, what are the opportunities that exist where you can tap into that innate part of our humanity and do something, take action in some form of your life where you've been avoiding or fearful of, or um, where there's been someone or something that has told you that you don't have what it takes to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Like, what is it that you've been holding on to and, and understanding how to let that go? And so that's what I try to help people is to have a skill set, right? Where, where like, you're going to be okay. Like we can do it. And that's at least what I hope when I talk to people all around the country that they can take away from my story. It is just my story. I literally just tell my story <laughs> about growing up on a farm in Nebraska, which people find highly amusing. Like people are like, where's Nebraska again? I, I don't remember where that is on a map. Can you remind me? I'm like, well, it's the middle. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give? So like, I've got a 13-year-old daughter. She wants to be a doctor. Oh, good um, for her. And have so have you, her email me. I'll uh, talk to her. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. So I'll, I'll take give her my the, information. <laughs> uh, but uh, so what advice would you give to, and you're talking about being a woman in, in medicine right. and that being a difficult thing. Um, what advice would you give to someone like that? To a 13-year-old? To a 13-year-old or anybody or, you know, any woman or young or girl who is thinking about that. So my advice would be that it's very challenging, but it's very rewarding. I think it's one of the most rewarding things that I've done with my life. And, you know, when I think about the, what you have to overcome to have a fulfilling career in medicine, right, to go into the field and 
to not burn out, to find joy in your every day. You know, I think what advice would I have given to my younger self? And my advice was going to be, it's worth it. It is rewarding. You can find so much joy in the work that you're going to do. And despite the stress that it causes you, you're going to be okay. (laughs) I spent a lot of my life worrying about whether I was going to be okay and whether I was going to succeed. And I shouldn't have spent so much time worrying about that, but being more present in the moment and focusing on the beauty of the moments that I was in and what I was learning. And I think I would... I would advocate for any young woman out there to go into the sciences and know that it is a wonderful area that just brings so much joy and fulfillment. And you need a good mentor. So if your daughter needs a good mentor, like I said, she can reach out to me. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I'll help her through the process. <laughs> so the final portion here, you know, obviously you're obviously uh, identified as a doctor first, but also as a runner. Uh, how does, uh, how did you become a runner and, and what has it meant to you? So this is a really funny story. So I went in the early eighties when I was young, I was very, 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 very hyper and very active. So in 2018, we call this attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We call what I had ADHD. Well, in the early eighties, ADHD did not exist. ADHD was invented around 1987. And so I could not focus. I was like at risk of failing out of like my early grade school and early school life. I just couldn't focus. My parents, they were seriously at a loss for what to do with me. They're like, what are we going to do with this crazy child? So they decided to do an experiment on me. I'm the oldest of five. So they're like, let's do an experiment here. So they said, Natalie, before you do your homework tonight, we want you to run around the block and burn off a little energy. So a block in Nebraska is literally <laughs> a perfect square that's four miles long. And so I would do this starting at like the age six or seven. I would do this every night. I would come home and I'd put on my running shoes, like my kids or my Converse's or whatever I considered running shoes as a child. And I would run four miles. And I took this with me my whole life And it all has to do back again with dopamine because running increases your amount of dopamine in your brain to levels that allow you to focus and find joy in what you're doing. And so I started running very young and I ran all through grade school. I ran through high school. I ran in college. I ran in nursing school, residency. I'd run three or four marathons a year and I never had to be medicated for my ADHD. I was able to control my symptoms and succeed and not only succeed, but thrive by running. And so I've been running for a very long time and it has been my medication. It has been my saving grace. It's why I'm here now. And you know why I think I find so much joy Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D. Associates. Thank you to the incredible 
incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Young, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast? Thank you.